Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Summer starts in just a few weeks, and that means efforts are underway by communities to connect kids in need with free meals. Coming up, we'll hear more and find out whether cuts in Washington will impact the seasonal program. But first, summer is the season when obsession about body image takes hold. If you've been trying to lose weight before the official start of summer, what has or hasn't worked for you? Coming up, we'll learn what researchers have to say about the latest in diet and exercise. Are counting calories and exercise the best approaches? What are your questions about the ways to lose weight? You can join the conversation today, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome uh, to the show our first guest, Dr. Sai Krupa-Das. She's a scientist at the Energy Metabolism Laboratory at the Human Nutrition Research Center on Aging and a faculty member at the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University. Dr. Das joins us today from Mix One Studios in Boston. Welcome to the show, Dr. Das. Hello. Good morning, Lucy, and good morning to everyone who's listening. I wanted to start off uh, with the statistics, alarming trends, so to speak, Dr. Doss. Uh, we, we, we understand that 37% of American adults are obese. An additional 34% are overweight. Uh, and if uh, current trends continue, experts predict half of all Americans will be obese by 2030. How did we get here? That's right. You know, that's uh, the current statistics as predicted by health experts from all the data that's been gathered nationally. And this is not just a national phenomenon. The global obesity epidemic is uh, very, very high. And the reason why we've got here is very complex. You know, we have a changing environment. We have increased food availability. We are faced with a lot of challenges with regards to how we can continue to eat throughout the day. And at the same time, there are so many things that have been automated. And so how much we burn and by way of calories in a given day is, is, is hard to you know keep up with. And so this balance between what we burn and what we consume has slowly but surely been tipping toward the positive side. And that is the consequence of um, you know what's happened to us over the decades, and this is how, in a simple way, we've gotten here. I think. When we talk about obesity, can you explain that term to us versus when we say someone is overweight, overweight rather? Right, and um, to define the two states, that is, individuals with overweight and individuals with obesity, we use what's called the body mass index. Now, this is a ratio of your weight to your height. And and the reason why that is done is because shorter individuals versus taller individuals, you know, have different metabolism and the weight that they carry is, you know, represented very differently. And therefore, using this ratio is a broad way to categorize individuals who fall into one or two groups. And again, for overweight, 
the BMI that is used for a cutoff is 25 to 30, and obesity is defined as having a body mass index of 30 and over. And even within that group, there are three levels of obesity, mild, moderate, and severe obesity. And so any individual with a BMI of over 30 um, is defined as having obesity. And this is something that's really hard um, at, at the individual level to understand because there's so much variability between weight per se and the composition of muscle versus fat. But at the population level, it is a good indicator of being able to see how we're trending and what the changes are over the decades. When we look at BMI, you know, some people may think that uh, there's too much focus on the numbers. So say someone is technically overweight looking at the, the ratio between uh, their height and weight, but maybe they, they make a good effort to eat the right foods and they are active. Um, do we put, put too much emphasis on this, this calculation? Well, yes and no. You know, if you're looking at someone with, who has a BMI of 26, which is technically cal you know, classified as having overweight, then perhaps there is definitely a gray zone and we need to look at it look at it at the individual level and see if their body composition, like I said, is comprised of, you know, more muscle and therefore they um, are classified at that, you know, BMI category. But if you're looking, like I said, at the population level, if someone is at the BMI of 40, there is not too much of a debate or a gray zone there in, in, you know, sort of being safely being able to say that they are, you know, a person with overweight and obesity. So I think that, you know, the, the actual numbers do help us at the population level. And like I said, at the individual level, there is some amount of, um, you know, individual body composition and other factors that need to be taken into consideration. We always joke that, you know, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, for example, who, you know, is a bodybuilder, um, at that time that is, I'm not sure where he's trending right now, but, um, you know, is someone with a BMI of 44, and, um, you know, he, he clearly is a misclassification, if you will. So, again, we should not take individuals, um, you know, individual cases such as um, him, you know, to be the, the case for the population. And I think we definitely have to look at this as an indicator at, you know, the group level and not at the individual level. I wanted to bring into the conversation Dr. Marlene Schwartz, director of the Rudd Center for, for Obesity and Food Policy here at uh, UConn. Uh, welcome to the show, Marlene. It's great to be here. When you look at the obesity trends, who are we talking about in this country? Well, it's interesting. It isn't evenly distributed throughout the population. There are definitely um, groups of Americans who are at higher risk of being overweight or obese, and those tend to be individuals who are lower income. There's also disparities in terms of race and ethnicity with African-American youth and Hispanic youth at higher risk of obesity than their white counterparts. Now, I mentioned you're director at the Rudd Center for, for Obesity and Food Policy. At least in recent decades, a lot of attention on, on health of Americans because of the obesity epidemic, uh, so to speak. Lots of fads out there, lots of different diets that have come and gone. Why are we still at this place where the numbers don't seem to be declining? Well, I think that it's really hard when you put all the responsibility on the individual to make changes. 
We really feel strongly that the environment needs to change. I think, as was mentioned earlier, I think most professionals in this field would agree that the reason we have an obesity epidemic now isn't because individuals sort of as a class suddenly got lazy or decided that they didn't want to eat well. It's because our environment changed, particularly our food environment. So at the Red Center, we really study policies that are designed to improve the nutrition environment, particularly for children. So the idea is not that you, you know, need to convince people or educate people so they can make a healthy choice when faced with a lot of difficult choices, but rather that you just make it easy for people to make the healthy choice because all of the options around them are healthy. One of the reasons we wanted to have this conversation, really interesting research uh, uh, published in an article written in the Scientific American, uh, Dr. Doss, uh, one of the co-authors, the title is, Want to Lose Weight? What You Need to Know About Eating and Exercise. And it actually will um, contradict or conflict with some of the age-old wisdom, where it's as simple as uh, maintaining uh, how many calories you eat versus how many calories uh, you're burning in terms of exercise. Dr. Doss, I wanted to go back to you um, to tell us a little bit more about that research and and what might be surprising to some? We've struggled with this this basic concept, and one of the reasons why we wrote this article in the Scientific American was to clarify that at the very basic level, burning more calories than we consume or eating less than what we burn is required in order for us to be able to lose weight. We've seen this all the time in folks who follow weight loss plans close to 100%. Any time we see an individual adhering or following very carefully a weight loss plan that's laid out for them, they lose weight. And so there is a lot of conversation, and this gets really personal when this is simplified. And again, we're not trying to dumb this down from the perspective of how easy it is, but to point out that that basic tenet or that basic principle works if it is followed to the T. But why this is not so straightforward is because there is so much variability at the individual level. And this includes whether um, one is a male or a female, the age of a person, hereditary factors, and other you know, hormonal states and physiological states or the state in which the individual is in at the time that they're trying to lose weight. The other is the ability for an individual to sustain the weight loss plan in, in a manner that, you know, they can do it over the long term. And this requires some discipline and retraining. And these are the nuances that really make it, as we title the Scientific American Articles, rather messy and not so straightforward. And this is something that we really hope to clarify via this article, that it's, it's, it's at the basic level, burning more calories than we consume or eating less than we burn, but doing it at the individual level requires all this nuancing or you know customizing that then makes it work for that individual and again i want to underscore what dr schwartz pointed out which is basically that this is not just the individual it's a system science or working at the individual level at the group level with the community and the food environment as well as the environment in which we live and actively do our daily life activities. Can you explain a little bit more about the differences? So again, we know the mantra, eat less, exercise more. It's something that's uh, important, especially exercise. But in terms of losing weight, explain the variables that you found depending on the individual. 
One of the things that we identified um, over the long-term research that we did within um, the laboratory setting, if you will, was that hunger is the number one factor that undoes the weight loss plan that is given to any individual or to a group that we are um, studying. And, and, and managing hunger and ensuring that an individual is never hungry at any given time in the day requires very careful um, selection of foods and making sure that foods that cause high satiety or satiation or fullness is something that is carefully planned in the food choices in any given day. So we have very concertedly been able to demonstrate that using a combination of pr- foods with high fiber, particularly, and, and um, good protein, really helps with this satiation or the feeling of fullness. And and most often, we've found participants in our research studies not be able to finish the food that was given to them. And, and this is, uh, remember, a weight loss study that they were participating in. So reduction in calories is a natural part of the plan. And not being able to... F- eat the food that was provided is is such a mystery to most people. But this is what um, our research, our participants in the research were saying, that they couldn't finish the food. And the reason why is because we helped them with menus and weight loss plans containing foods that had high fiber and high protein. And so doing this in a careful manner, in, in a way that we help retrain our eating process is something that is really helpful in adhering or sticking to weight loss plans. So instead of uh, focusing on the calories, thinking more about the kinds of food that you can eat that will make you feel fuller longer? That's correct, yes. Avoiding hunger and and ensuring that at any time in in a given day, an individual is not hungry is key for the success of weight loss plan. And in order for that success to be achieved, the composition of foods is, is really important. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Um, with us on for today's conversation about weight loss and exercise is Dr. Sai Krupa Das, scientist at the Energy Meta- Meta- Metabolism Laboratory at the Human Nutrition Research Center on Aging, a faculty member at the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University. She's joining us today from Mix One Studios in Boston. Also in studio, Dr. Marlene Schwartz, director of the Rudd Center for, for Obesity and Food Policy at UConn. Uh, when we come back from the break, we're going to learn more about exactly why we're so obsessed with, with counting calories and to find out what are they really. And you can join the conversation too, 860-275-7266. Have you been struggling to to lose weight, what approaches have you taken in order to get in shape? We'll take your questions and comments after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Counting calories can become an addiction if you're trying to lose weight, but are what are you counting really? Is it as simple as calories in, calories out? Today we're talking about the latest research into diet and exercise, and you can join the conversation too, 860-275-7266. Uh, Dr. Sai Krupa Das is uh, down the line from us from Boston from Mix One Studios. She's a scientist at the Energy Metabolism Laboratory at the Human Nutrition Research Center on Aging, a faculty member at the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy. Policy at Tufts. Also in studio, Dr. Marlene Schwartz, director of the Rudd Center for Obesity and Food Policy at UConn. I wanted to get back into the calorie conversation, uh, Dr. Doss. Um, how many calories does the average person need to function on a daily basis? 
Again, studies have shown that on uh, average, individuals need about 2,000 calories if you're a female, and if you're a male, you need about 2,500 calories on average to be able to clearly and effectively go about activities of daily living and also have all of the bodily functions maintained and to be living healthy, healthily and effectively. So we really don't need too many calories. There's a lot of conversation about perhaps we have moved away from, you know, the hunter-gathering days and therefore, you know, if we really did live like the Paleolithic men, that we would need more calories. But studies have shown that is that's not quite the case. And again, I want to point out that these are the average caloric requirements for an average person, and this does not include folks who are highly athletic or um, have you know other specific lifestyle and other situations that would um, require a greater number of calories. But on average, this is what research has shown that humans need for daily living and effective functioning. I wanted to go back to what you said um, in, in the article you wrote for Scientific American. You talk about how research have show, researchers have shown that uh, indigenous populations who very active uh, lifestyles really were needing the same calories that we need today. So there's, all, there's that misconception that Americans are lazy, we eat too much, we don't need to be eating as much, but it's not necessarily the case when you're talking about uh, the calorie intake. Exactly. So... You know, we have gone back, not we specifically, but, you know, researchers have gone back to examine precisely, you know, the lifestyle and the caloric requirements. And there are studies in the Hazda population in northern Tanzania, and they require about, again, 2,600 calories on average per day for their activities, which is considered really highly active, uh, you know, by normal um, standards. And these populations, the Yakut of Siberia, the Hasda in Tanzania and others who really have, you know, pastoral and hunter-gatherer-like lifestyles, um, including the Aymara and the Andean, they did not require more than 20 to 2,500 calories or less than 3,000 in any case. And so we really don't need as many calories as we think we would need, given that we had, you know, higher lifestyle, um, you know, uh, expenditures or burning of calories that, you know, uh, could have happened if, if we weren't as sedentary as we are now. So um, that is something that is really important and was humbling in some ways for us to understand the whole energy or calorie requirements um, and, and the scenario with which we are faced with now with the excess weight and obesity. Dr. Schwartz is in studio with us, director of the Rudd Center for Obesity and Food Policy at UConn. Um, talk, talk a little bit about the research that you're doing in terms of, and when you're talking with people, are they surprised to learn that, um, you know, 2,000 calories for women, a little bit more for men? And, you know, there, there's always this idea that, well, if we eat less, we can lose weight, but you also don't want to starve yourself. Sure. Well, you know, I think that, again, it's a matter of really matching your environment to your caloric intake. And so people um, can have a sense of, you know, how many calories they can eat each day to maintain their weight. And I think people need to sort of identify that for themselves. But another thing that often surprises people is how it changes over the lifespan. So as people age, their caloric needs differ. So for example, um, adolescent boys probably are the winners in terms of having the highest caloric 
um, needs and are able to eat, you know, a lot, actually. And as they get older, sometimes they're quite surprised when they hit their 20s and 30s that they really can't consume as much. I think for women, I was actually reading the Scientific American article, and I turned 50 a year ago, and there's this dramatic drop in terms of how many calories women need as they age. And so that's the other piece of it, I think, is realizing that over time, your needs also change. You can join the conversation if you have questions for for our researchers on on diet and exercise, 860-275-7266. I want to take a call. Uh, Brett is calling from Newington. Brett, you're on the show. Hello. uh, I I have a question as to why so many educated um, nutritionists still use BMI. BMI is like if it doesn't apply, if the equation doesn't apply to every single one, you cannot apply any of the results to a whole group like society. Um, I know too many athletes that have uh, BMIs that might be considered overweight or um, obese, and yet they have like less than 10% body weight if you do like a submersion test. Um, you can see their abs when they're not even flexing. BMI does not work. Just like training wheels don't work for learning how to ride a bicycle. Training wheels are good if you're learning how to drive a car or a tricycle. Use the things that work and go from there. Don't use the things that other people used in the past that still don't work. Push bicycles are better than tricycles, than training wheels. BMI does not work. All right, Brett, we hear your message loud and clear. I want to have uh, Dr. Schwartz answer uh, your question. Sure. So I I think BMI has been very misunderstood. It's really designed as a surveillance surveillance measure. So it's not designed to make decisions about individuals. It's designed to make decisions about populations. And it does work because we've been using the same measure over time. So all those outliers that the caller was talking about, those outliers existed 30 years ago. They exist now. But the idea is that if you track a population of people over decades and you're using the same measure, what we've seen is this incredible increase in the percentage, particularly we study children who are at that high BMI level. When you see it changing between the 70s, the 1980s, the 1990s, the 2000s, you can rely because you're sort of comparing you know, apples to apples. And so that's why and how BMI should be used. We wanted to bring another researcher into the conversation now to tell us all about the calorie. And that's Dr. David Baer, research leader at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Dr. Baer, welcome to the show. Good morning. So let's start off with what exactly is a calorie? Well, a calorie is actually a, a unit of measure. It's a unit of measure of energy. And we can measure energy. We can, just like we measure temperature, we can have temperature in degrees Fahrenheit or degrees Celsius. We can measure energy, and we quantify it with the unit of calorie. Some countries uh, in the scientific literature, we use a different uh, unit. We use joules. Um, so calories, from a scientific perspective, is a unit of measure for energy. And I know we only have so much time, but can you kind of um, explain to us in, in basic terms how calories are actually measured? Sure. Well, I mean, if if we're looking at the calories in a food, we take one approach. If we're trying to measure how many calories somebody is metabolizing, how many calories somebody is burning, we use different methods. A lot of the focus and a lot of our interest is on the calories in food, and the system 
labeling our food with the calories, like the calories you see on the food label today, it's actually based on an approach that was developed in the 1800s, um, initially by scientists in Europe, and then by it really work continued here in the United States with a scientist whose name was Wilbur O. Atwater. And basically what we see on the food label today is the calories that are available for the, to the body for, for work. So it's really the metabolizable energy of a food, and it accounts for incomplete digestion of a food, so energy that we can't extract from the food, it's lost in our, in our feces. I wanted to go back to Dr. Doss um, out of Tufts in Boston. Um, uh, David, uh, Dr. Baer mentioned uh, Wilbur Olin Atwater. Tell us more about him because I believe he began his research here in Stores, Connecticut. That's right. He is very local to Connecticut, and um, Stores is, is where his experimental station was, but he also worked out of Wesleyan uh, College uh, quite extensively. Wilbur uh, was ver- a very determined young man who set out, he is, we consider him the father of nutrition, and he is one of the first individuals or pioneers to basically put the face of nutrition, human nutrition, um, to the American public and to expose the importance of, if you will, not expose really, but to bring to light the importance of how much energy is harvested from fruits and, and, and how foods can really make a huge impact in the productivity, um, the ability for an individual to be able to work and to effectively function in daily life. Now, this is, um, we're talking the 19th century, and this is, you know, an individual who, you know, really was um, part of the society, American society, during the Civil War. Um, and, and, and really what uh, we were looking at at that time is is how can we effectively get the workforce to be able to do all the kinds of work that needs to be done and stretch the food dollar, if you will, to the best, um, you know, to get the best bang, if you will, for um, the buck that was spent on on food. So Wilbur, um, in a very serious, um, uh, in a very elegant series of experiments, pointed out that um, really that the caloric content of proteins, carbohydrates, and fats, um, you know, had different capacities to provide energy. And and he really set the stage as well as the conversations for, um, you know, for being able to consider human nutrition in in that perspective and in that light. It started out as an economic exercise, if you will, you know, really uh, think about it. But um, that was where um, the conversations were started. But, you know, really human nutrition was put on the map and yeah, he did all this in Connecticut, uh, both at stores and um, at Wesleyan, and and really, really uh, pers- pursued the science of human nutrition um, till the end of his life. And so we're very grateful for all his contributions and the fact that we're talking about him, um, you know, in in this century is is a testimony to his um, ability and his and his greatness. We were talking earlier about um, it really matters uh, uh, individual to individual in terms of getting the right weight loss plan. Uh, Dr. Uh, David Baer out of the USDA, you had some interesting research all about um, how many calories are actually extracted, how that varies from person to person. Can you talk about that? Sure. So we did a number of studies with tree nuts looking at how many calories there are in a serving of nuts. And as Dr. Das has said, 
Atwater did amazing research in the early 1900s and developed a system that we still use today, but there's been very little work, research looking at how accurate are some of these numbers. Probably for a lot of the foods in our food supply, the, the numbers that Atwater developed work pretty well. We had some interest in tree nuts and devised a, a way that we could measure the calorie content of nuts when they're fed as part of a regular diet. What we found was that there's the, the, the energy value for some nuts is somewhere between 20 and 25% lower than what's on the food label, and that there is variability among individuals probably related to how well they chew the nuts before they swallow them. That's interesting. So the variability is different. So if you're looking at a label and saying a handful of almonds that I'm eating is going to give me this many calories, but that that's dependent on how well someone's actually chewing their food? That's right. And on average, for the studies we did, that difference was about 20 to 25% fewer calories. But among the the people that we studied, there was a range. So some people got fewer than 20%. Some people got more than 20%. And when we're looking at uh, the processed food that's so often in our diets, so say the the breakfast bar, um, if two different people are eating that breakfast bar, they're probably getting the same uh, caloric intake because of the way it's been processed? Uh, It might depend on what's in that bar. Um, it might depend on the fiber, the type of fiber and the amount of fiber. And also some of the breakfast bars and things have nuts in them. So again, it might depend to some degree on how people chew their food. And what about with whole grains, oats, and high fiber cereals? This is something that is harder to digest. So in terms of the calorie intake that people are getting when they eat those items. That's a good question. There's been little research recently looking at energy value of whole grains. Uh, It's something that we're interested in in continuing our research on to look at whole grains and also beans and legumes and pulses. Um, Because of that fiber content, the energy value is probably a little bit lower and there's probably going to be variability among people depending on how they chew, maybe on how they ferment those foods because the fiber is fermented. Depending on those sorts of digestive processes, there's probably going to be some variability among people as to how many calories they'll be able to get out of those higher fiber plant foods. Um, Today we're talking about diet and exercise on where we live. Uh, On the phone with us, Dr. David Baer, research leader at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Another researcher from Tufts on the the line, too, Dr. Sai Krupa-Doss and Dr. Marlene Schwartz from from UConn's direct uh, Rudd Center for Obesity and Food Policy. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Dr. Baer, when we look at food labels, um, oftentimes people are just looking again at the number. Uh, You mentioned nuts. Again, we hear that that's good. Uh, we should be eating more nuts like almonds and, and others, but because of the high calorie content, uh, people may avoid these foods. Is that something that, um, you, you, that you're finding in your research? Well, when we talk with people, there's certainly a segment of the population that are calorie conscious that look at the food labels. And if they see that a food like nuts, almonds, walnuts, and other nuts are high in calories, they might avoid choosing that as a snack or as part of their um, diet. Uh, 
nuts are a really good source or an excellent source of a lot of key nutrients. And what what we would hope is that people wouldn't just focus on that calorie label that's on the on the food today because it might not be accurate and perhaps avoid consuming some of these foods that are nutrient dense because of fear of the calorie. Mm. Uh, Dr. Doss, I wanted to turn back to you because we're talking about, uh, again, obsession over calories. We're learning from uh, Dr. Baer's research that depending on the way uh, food is chewed, uh, sometimes the calories can vary from person to person. And with all that in mind, should we be paying attention to something else on the food label, maybe the fat content of a certain food? I think all, um, you know, of food composition is really important. And I just want to go back to this issue of, you know, whole grains and oats versus almonds. I think what we need to help our listeners understand is that if you're looking, say, at a 100-calorie snack pack, right, you know, you're looking at two snack packs, one perhaps that's pure pretzels and the other that's, uh, you know, a 100-calorie pack of almonds, the amount of calories that's available, say, from the almond pack would eventually after it's digested and processed within the body is probably going to be slightly lesser than what you would get from a pack of pretzels. So it is making these kinds of choices that's really important. And and we shouldn't sort of confuse that with, you know, saying that not all calories are equal. No, at the end of the day, if your body is looking at 10 calories, your body is going to utilize the 10 calories in the same way, uh, you know, um, and no matter what. But how this varies from the foods that you're consuming is really the key. And therefore, that goes back to the choices we make. And we're learning a lot now about this kind of variability in the types of food sources that could actually be contributing calorically to um, uh, our body's energy needs. And we did a study recently with whole grains and oats, um, and, and, and for two diets that were exactly similar in the caloric content, but differed in the composition, which is basically with greater number of whole grains, oats, and high fiber, we found that you know the individual that was getting these calories actually had the net calories or the final calories that were available to the body was lower than what was being provided. And this was because some of those calories were lost um, via the fiber in, in the feces, as was pointed out earlier. And, um, you know, so ultimately the available calories because of the food form or the type of food that the person was consuming was actually way lower than what the label uh, really stated. So these are important things that, you know, would help us at the individual level with making choices and regulating um, our food environment and and then and, and how we go about trying to achieve weight regulation or weight um, loss maintenance. I want to take some calls now. Uh, Sarah is calling from New Britain. Sarah, you're on the show. Hi. Yeah, I'm calling in because, um, you know, like many people, I've, I've struggled with my weight throughout my life, and I've unfortunately had eating disorders as a result of, you know, my struggles. But if there's one thing that disturbs me a lot as someone who's wa- lost 50 pounds twice because I regained it the first time. Um, It's that I'm very disturbed by this whole movement that you see in different ways of cutting out a given food group. So you cut out carbs, you cut out fat or what have you. And that's just, it's not realistic and it, it leads to failure because there's only so long you can go with 
never having pasta again or never having pizza again. And we live in a world of temptation. That's the way it is. And people need to learn how to live their lives with having cake on occasion or having a slice of pizza or two or even three and, you know, not never eating it again because at the end of the day, you're going to eat pizza and you can't forever, you know, forsake it. Well, Sarah, thank you for your comments. I'll I'll go to Dr. Schwartz from the Rudd Center for Obesity and Food Policy. Um, She makes some good points, especially, you know, people have been there where they lose the weight, they gain it back. And she's saying you can't necessarily cut out everything and assume that you'll have success. What do you say to to people like Sarah? Sure. Well, I think it's it's completely true that a diet that has you cut out an entire food group is probably a very bad idea, um, both from a nutritional perspective and also in terms of your ability to maintain it over time. Um, this idea, though, of having specific foods that you decide you're not going to eat again, it's it's really interesting um, because you can think of it a couple different ways. There probably are some foods that people could decide they're just not going to have again. So, for example, sugar-sweetened soda might be something that someone may decide they're just, it's not worth it, it's a lot of calories, it's all sugar, has no nutrition, and they can just cut that out and probably, you know, be fine. Um, but something you know more substantive like carbohydrates, all pastas, or you know having a piece of cake on your birthday might be harder um, to sustain over time. So you know there you almost can think of it in analogous to um, alcohol. There are some people who can you know moderate alcohol; they can have some; it doesn't become a problem. There are other people who really feel that it's sort of all or nothing. And so there are individuals I think out there who feel there are certain foods that really cause a problem for them, and they need to cut out entirely. And other people for whom the you know ability to moderate comes more easily. Um, we'll have to uh, leave it there with uh, Dr. David Baer, who is uh, on the phone with us, research leader at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Dr. Baer, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I wanted to just go back quickly to Dr. Doss uh, from uh, Tufts University uh, in Boston. Uh, we didn't have much time to talk about uh, personalized diets. Uh, what's the best uh, best course that people should take? And if you're able to answer this under a minute, that would be great. The best course that people should take is what was pointed out earlier, you know, finding out what it is that, you know, works best for us in terms of our lifestyle and, and you know, not doing drastic, you know, changes to to your diet patterns, but being very smart about the choices and, and finding um, professional help that helps us, you know, get through this process. And I think that is the number one, um, you know, point that I would like to underscore here. Dr. Sai Krupa Das, scientist at the Energy Metabolism Lab at the Human Nutrition Research Center on Aging, a faculty member at the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up, we're going to shift to the eating habits of children during the summer. How do kids eligible for free and reduced meals and school fare during vacation months? We'll find out after the break. This is where we live.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Thursday, we'll preview the Senate hearing and the much-anticipated testimony of former FBI Director James Comey. That's coming up Thursday. Now, summer officially starts in a couple of weeks. That means the end of the school year. But what happens to the kids who receive free meals during the school year? And how does that impact their health over the next three months? To help answer our questions, again, in studio with us, Dr. Marlene Schwartz, Director of the Rudd Center for Obesity and Food Policy at UConn. And joining the conversation, Shannon Yearwood, Chief Strategy Officer with N. Hunger, Connecticut. Shannon, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. I wanted to start with Marlene. Uh, we, we understand children are more li- likely to put on weight during the summer. Why is that? Yeah, so this was really surprising when this research first came out, showing that kids' weight trajectory was steeper during the summer than during the school year. Um, one reason may be that the structure of the school meals is really helpful for children and that kids are getting breakfast and lunch every day. And um, certainly more true now than ever, but it's always been the case that school meals have had nutrition standards. So the um, quality of the food that kids were getting at breakfast and lunch is probably better than what was available um, during the summer for a lot of children. So that's another reason. In addition, kids probably watch more TV during the summer. They're exposed to more marketing um, and, you know, they unfortunately um, may not, even though you think of summer as being outside running around, a lot of kids may end up really being inside and therefore it's not as healthy of a time for them. I mentioned uh, Shannon's here from End Hunger, Connecticut. When we talk about children that are accessing free meals during the school year, how much of a percentage are we talking about? So we're really talking about uh, over the course of the summer for the kids that we're able to reach with the free reduced meals during the school year. Nationally, we're only reaching one in six kids. In Connecticut, we're doing slightly better, and we're actually reaching one out of four kids. There's a lot of opportunity and room to grow with that. Um, Summer does does have its particular challenges with access, awareness, transportation. And as Marlene said, a lot of kids are at home because they're, you know, especially if they're with families who are have low incomes, they may not be able to provide enrichment activities for the kids, like a camp where you may have to pay for a program fee. So the summer meals programs really provide an opportunity, not just for nutrition, but also for activities for the kids. So in summer meals, um, traditionally, they're at community health centers or community centers at libraries. And where do they get these free meals? Yes, all of the above. So there in Connecticut in 2016, there were 708 locations that that kids could go to. We've seen a huge increase in those number of locations. It could be at schools. You could have it at libraries, as you mentioned, all of the all of the areas you mentioned, plus parks, pools, really, you know, YMCA's, Boys and Girls Clubs, really anywhere where there where there's a location where it's eligible for kids. We highly encourage uh, providers of these programs to find where kids are already gathering and where activities are already taking place because it's much easier to make sure that kids have access in those known areas. There's usually some site supervision where um, you know we're knowing that the kids are going to be safe, they're going to be supervised, they're going to have adults nearby, and they're going to have nutritious food that's, that is provided to them in a predictable way through a trusted and reliable source such as the school system. Um, a community-based organization or a government program, um, or like I said, the schools. And when we talk about these programs, primarily funded through the federal government, and if that's the case, you know, what's the the future hold for these programs? Sure. So I think that's the question we always have to ask ourselves. And as advocates, we have to do a good job of making sure that all of the folks who make decisions on these programs are aware of how impactful they are on the ground and how meaningful they are to the kids and the families that are accessing them. 
So we, um, I lost track of your question. I'm, I was apologize. curious about um, how these programs <laughs> oh, yes, are funded. Yes, USDA. I'm sorry. So at the federal level, these programs are funded through the USDA, and then they are administered at the state level through the State Department of Education. And then from there, the local um, organizations like summer school or like schools, excuse me, and community-based nonprofits and government municipalities and camps can take advantage of those uh, programs to be able to provide the food at the locations like the camps and the schools and, and libraries that we spoke about. And the eligibility for these programs, does that need to be changed in terms of the children that are um, being served or depending on the, their poverty level? And then what about efforts to um, allow parents and families to be to be fed together? Would that help the, the, the efforts? Sure. So to address your first question, these programs are only available in areas where at least 50% of the kids are identified as eligible for free or reduced price meals during the school year. We absolutely think that that threshold is not adequate. We think that at the very least, it should be dropped to 40%. Um, they're hard thresholds. So, you know, if you're, at a, if you're in an area that's defined in the certain geography, how USDA defines it, and you're at 49%, you can't provide uh, summer meal in that site. So we definitely think that some more flexibility should be um, put into the program, especially because a lot of these areas, you look at where it's eligible, it might be a parking lot, but across the street in an area that is not defined as eligible is a beautiful park where all the kids are playing, but they can't eat the food there. And so it's, you know, these, these hard rules on it, I think, make it a really big challenge to make sure that kids do have that safe, reliable place to have that nutritious meal. Um, and I do, I keep losing track of your, I lost track of your second question there. When we talk we about, caffeine. when we talk about eligibility, um, and again, depending on the threshold, um, if, if there are government programs and there's only so much money, but you want to be able to feed, you know, the parents or, or others in the family, is there more of an effort now to rely on uh, private uh, donors or other, yeah. other ways to sponsor these meals so that these families can eat together during the summer? Sure. So just to address your other question, too, on eligibility, when kids show up to these um, sites, because they're only available in areas that are eligible for um, these meals, they do not have to show ID or proof of income. They just show up and they're offered a meal. They have to be 18 and younger, as you mentioned, and absolutely having the ability to feed parents or feed full families helps increase participation, helps the kids actually access that nutritious meals. Because these programs, the way that they're administered, are, are administered in a way to really mimic how schools are, how school meals are administered, they are only available to kids 18 and younger. There are a lot of efforts to be able to get private funds to provide those parent meals. And you would be surprised at how low of a cost it actually is to provide meals to parents and how impactful it can be on participation. You know, it can be awkward for parents to come to the sites and and have their kids eat and they're kind of hanging around, you know, not really sure what to do with themselves. And on the flip side, it's really tough for the kids who are very well aware that their parents may not have eaten that day, too. And they're eating in front of their parents who they know probably are hungry. And there's pretty strict rules around the, you know, the food is for the kids. So they can't even, you know, give the parent that apple that they may not want to eat. So it, it it is important that we take this into consideration. But currently, the government program um, through Summer Meals doesn't allow for for federal funds to be spent in that way, but private funds are absolutely usable for that. 
I wanted to turn back to Dr. Schwartz from the Rudd Center for Obesity and Food Policy at UConn. We're talking a lot about children and, and ways to help those in uh, need to get summer meals. But in terms of, of childhood obesity um, in the state, what are the, what are the numbers? Are we seeing any improvement? Well, the the numbers in Connecticut are a little bit better um, than the national average overall. But what I think is important to realize about Connecticut is that we also have these tremendous disparities. So there are parts of the state where the rates of childhood obesity are really quite alarming and then other parts where the higher income communities where the rates of obesity tend to be lower. So I think it really gets back to the importance, um, as Shan was saying, of children having access to reliable, healthy food and for the whole family to be able to count on that. And I think that um, there's some really sort of interesting theories to try to understand why there's this overlap between children who are food insecure and are also obese, because it seems kind of contradictory. But I think it has to do with both eating lower quality food that's really less expensive because it's all you can afford and it and it isn't that healthy. Um, and also that unreliability that I think most people who've ever been on a diet can understand where if you're super, super hungry, it's very hard to regulate when you do finally have the opportunity to eat something. I wanted to take a quick call. Monica's calling from Middletown. Monica, we have under a minute, but I understand in Middletown there, there is an effort to find private sponsors. Can you tell us quickly? Yeah, so we we um, had a great um, change in sponsors ago. We went from serving just a thousand meals in the summer to serving almost twenty five thousand meals in the summer, and so that local person really makes a big difference. And having the community behind them to make sure that information is getting out and that connections to the camps, as Shannon was saying, where kids are already playing, who where the area might be eligible. Um, and also encouraging park and rec departments to open up camps in areas that are eligible. We have a lot of families who maybe don't qualify for free and reduced price meals, but still don't make enough money to make ends meet. And so having that meal either at school or at their summer camp program really makes a difference, as, as Marlene said, in reliability for kids. Well, thank you, Monica. And sorry we were able to to, uh, take you a little bit earlier in the show, but we appreciate your comments and good to hear what's happening in Middletown. I want to thank uh, Shannon Yearwood, Chief Strategy Officer with End Hunger Connecticut, for joining us. Thank you, Shannon. Absolutely. And also Dr. Marlene Schwartz, Director of the Rudd Center for Obesity and Food Policy at UConn. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Uh, Lydia Brown produced today's show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks to technical producer Kion Wolf. And as always, thanks for listening.